This is the Apex United Methodist Church podcast. This morning, as I shared earlier, we are wrapping up a sermon series that we have called uh, Too Busy to Be Present. And we have explored it from different angles, uh, particularly the busyness that we experience uh, in our own lives, uh, in our own choices, uh, in our own activity, as well as the pressure that the culture we live in uh, puts on us to be a busy people. Uh, it's the models that we see. It's the, uh, the ways that we live. Uh, myself, uh, we have joked throughout the series, my wife and I have, uh, that it's, this has sort of been a public conversation that you guys get to overhear. Uh, and if it's helpful for y'all, great. Uh, but it's been a great conversation for us as we've even evaluated our own lives and patterns, uh, how we're trying to raise uh, two children, uh, not to value busyness over holiness. And what that means for us uh, as a couple, as a family, as members of a community to, to, to practice uh, not just share, not just to preach, but also practice what we preach uh, and live as a people free to be uh, who God has called us to be. Uh, so this morning we're wrapping this, this series up. Uh, I want to begin uh, where we have sort of come into it every week, which is uh, with a passage from Exodus. And so if you have a Bible with you this morning, I invite you to open uh, with me to Exodus 20. Uh, we'll be beginning with verse uh, 8. This is the Ten Commandments. Moses has gone up on a mountaintop, received this word from God, is coming down now and sharing it with God's people. This is what he says. He says, Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Uh, six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work. Uh, you, your son or your daughter, uh, your male or female slave, your livestock or the alien resident in your towns. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth the sea and all that is in them, but rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it, or the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, I've shared this everywhere I've preached for the last several weeks, but my hope is if you get nothing else out of this series, uh, that you will hear uh, this reminder uh, that, that Sabbath is just supposed to be part of who we are. It is the only of the Ten Commandments that does not start with a thou shalt or thou shalt not. Uh, it starts with remember. And my hope and prayer has been this series and this uh, conversation would be a reminder to us, would invite us into a pattern that is not to satisfy uh, God, uh, some demand of God, but is really designed for us. Jesus says the Sabbath uh, was not uh, designed to hold man, but for man. I mean, it's designed not to, to be a legalistic law that we follow, but something for our own selves and our own sake. And that's what we've been exploring the last couple of weeks as we've looked at how a Sabbath, stepping back, retreating, uh, stopping, uh, invites us to a place where we might hear God. We spent some time with Elijah uh, two weeks ago, uh, going to a quiet place, to the wilderness and then to a mountaintop, uh, to listen to the still, small voice of God. So Sabbath is part of those patterns and reminders to connect to God. Uh, last week we spent time in a relationship. And now part of our pattern as, as Christ followers is to not do this thing alone, but to be in healthy relationships with one another. And again, we have to choose to create space for those relationships. It's a choice we make. And Sabbath keeping is part of that choice making, that we choose to engage in those conversations, include, choose to engage in healthy relationships that challenge us, that push us, that, that, that sharpen us, so that we might look more and experience life more like Christ designed and desired for us. And so that, that has been our call, and that has been our, our task these last several weeks. will continue to be, although not explicitly, over the next several years, it is always our task as God's people uh, to be a Sabbath people. 
there's several books that I've mentioned, and I want to share them again this morning. People have asked me, hey, you mentioned like three books. I don't carry a pen with me, so I don't write them down. Um, you can type them in your phone. We're going to try to put them up online this week as part of the sermon notes if you have the app. Uh, but I want to sort of run through them and share you what I've shared the last couple of weeks as well. Uh, one uh, is a book called The Practice of the Presence of God. Uh, it is a collection of the teachings and sayings of Brother Lawrence. Uh, Brother Lawrence was a 17th century monk uh, that has taught extensively about what it means to experience God every day, all the time, and how, whether it's through the work that you do, uh, the just daily rhythms of your life, that we are uh, to be in that constant, continual prayer, life, or communion uh, with God. It's a great book. It's a simple book. It's inexpensive. It's $3 on Amazon, uh, so you can easily get it. It's an easy read uh, in the sense that it's short. Uh, it's a challenging read. It's one of the most challenging reads I've done as a disciple where I've been called to this continual presence of God. But I encourage you, if you've not read it, to pick it up. It really is a great, uh, great companion to the series. Uh, the second one is by Dr. Matthew Sleeth. It's called 24-6. And again, I've shared this before, but uh, he was a medical doctor, uh, was self-professed not following Christ as a medical doctor, was caught up in the churn and the busyness of what it meant to practice medicine in an ER, and, and felt called to uh, experience life differently. Uh, rather than the on-demand of 24-7, the constant connection of 24-7 to step back and to try uh, this pattern of life uh, that God designs for us from the beginning. And so, again, it's, an, it's a great read. He, he's a storyteller, so it's, it's fun to read. If, if Brother Lawrence is your, like, deep theology, deep thought, uh, Dr. Sleeth, although a great theologian, also is, uh, he's, just, he's really easy, really accessible. So that's a great piece as well. The last one uh, I shared last week for the first time in here, uh, and I know you guys had Dr. Elliot at 11 o'clock if you're here, uh, but uh, it's called Making Room for Life uh, by uh, Pastor Randy Frazee. Uh, Randy was a pastor. He is a pastor. And he realized that he, uh, even as a pastor, as someone trying to model this life, had gotten so caught up in the activity of church, the activity of holiness, uh, the activity and busyness of uh, being in relationships in multiple places with multiple people and multiple groups, that he was just spread thin and could not experience the life and the fullness of life uh, that God had designed for us. And so it's just, again, it's a great, a great book. It's a little bit older. Uh, it's probably 10, 15 years old, uh, but it's just a great uh, companion piece again if you're looking for ways uh, to live this kind of life. My mom actually picked this up last week. She goes, I, I heard you preaching. I bought, I bought the book you mentioned. I started reading it, and I realized y'all's lives are busy. <laughs> it's like, thank you, Mom. That's right. That's, this is just for me, right, this whole series. Uh, so this morning we shift, and we shift from uh, the idea of connecting with God, too busy to connect with God, uh, too busy to connect with relationship, to this idea of work. And it's slightly counterintuitive, but I think it's really important for us uh, to know uh, that Sabbath, at its core, uh, is, de- is a design, is a response, uh, not just for rest, but actually to help us be more fruitful in our work. So we are better at the work that we do if we live into a pattern of Sabbath. Uh, I'm going to start with a question. The question is this. Uh, what do you want to be when you grow up? Some of you are like, I'm still answering that question. <laughs> I've been doing a career for 20 years. I still don't know what I want. Uh, some of you are, are beginning a new journey. Some of you are changing, and changing your journey. Some of you are in a job that you uh, know is going to be a job for a while or the task you're taking on for a while. This is a question we ask our kids uh, frequently. It's not all the time, but they, or they'll bring it up to us. And, and so this week, I thought it'd be fun uh, to ask them again what they want to be. And we asked some of our neighbors as well. And so we have about uh, some, some kids that answer this question this week. I want you to watch. Katerina, what would you like to be when you grow up? I would like to be an 
Tyler, what would you like to be when you grow up? When I grow up, I want to be a football player. When I grow up, I would like to be a musician, and after that, I would like to be an artist. When I grow up, I want to be a video game designer. When I grow up, I want to be a sports player, and then after, when I grow older, I want to be a sports statistician or a sports announcer. Adriana, what would you like to be when you grow up? I would like to be a veterinarian. I would like to be an NFL player when I grow up, and after that, I would like to be... Well, like, ten years later, I would like to be um, a shop worker. When I grow up, I'm going to be a gem miner. Gem miner! Gem miner! I love um, several of those just make me laugh. And these, of course, are our neighbors. We know them well. We, we hang out with them often. And uh, Adriana, the girl who said she wanted to be a veterinarian, I feel like mimics us sometimes. We're like, I want to be a veterinarian, I think. Right? Like she just didn't know. Like there was this look in her eyes that, did I say what I should have said? Like I don't, I don't actually know, right? Uh, or, you know, I, so I wish. You know, Bennett there at the end, uh, Bennett uh, turns five this year. And, and, and like, I just wish we had the excitement that Bennett has, you know, for that. Now, of course, Bennett wants to be a gem miner. Um, which I don't know what that looks like here, but that's, that's what he wants. But he's excited, right? I'm, I'm going to be a gem miner, gem miner. Like, I mean, he just, that's awesome. Uh, you know, or, or even, you know, there's, just, again, so much and so much fun to that. Uh, my own kids, you saw in there, Coleman and Campbell, uh, we laughed uh, earlier. Uh, you know, Campbell, I think in some ways they have seen uh, my life. You know, I was uh, in software and then became a pastor. Uh, my wife has also gone through different careers in, in a short period of time. And so they, they I think, realize, have seen the pattern that for them, they're probably not going to do one thing forever, right? You know, they're going to be, for Coleman, he's like, I want to, I want to be a professional sports player. Now, I don't know what sport or what that's going to look like, um, but he's going to try. And when that's over, you know, I'm going to be a sports statistician, and then I'm going to be a sports announcer. Like, he has a theme, but he knows he's going to change, right? Uh, our daughter you know, said very clearly, I want to be a musician uh, and then an artist. So, again, it's going to change. The only thing that won't change is she'll live with us her whole life, and that's just a <laughs> But, but I, I mean, I love, I love this question. You know, what, what do you want to be? Uh, and I think that for us as adults, for many of us, uh, if you have made those choices and entered into careers or entered into vocations, whatever that looks like, uh, you've made some of these choices along the way. And one thing that's true of our culture, uh, particularly in the West and particularly in the United States, uh, what we do with our lives, what we do vocationally, uh, often is very closely tied uh, to our identity. But how we understand ourselves. Uh, we understand our value. We understand our worth sometimes uh, by the work that we do. And so whether that is uh, an artist or musician, whether that's a professional athlete, whether that's as a lawyer, a doctor, a teacher, a stay-at-home mom or a stay-at-home dad, uh, whether, whatever it may be, whether you're in software or in business, you know, we are often, part, at least in part, uh, defined by that work. And so when people get to know you or first get to meet you, one of the questions they, they often ask, that I often ask, is, you know, what do you do? You know, what do you do for a living? And you respond, and you answer those questions, and, and you begin, that begins to shape how people see you and understand you. It begins to shape, I think, how we see and understand uh, ourselves. I will confess uh, that uh, depending on where I am and who I'm talking to, uh, when people ask me what I do, uh, if you know, I'm not in the mood to sort of field all the questions that come with being a pastor. 
I sometimes will get very vague and just say, you know what? I just, I work with people. <laughs> that's, what I, that's what I do, right? Uh, or, you know, I, or, I'll, or I'll hear what they've done and if they're in computer business at all, or they, you know, I used to work in software. Like sometimes that's just an easier conversation to have than all the stuff that goes to church. Um, but, but we know that, right? We know that what we do, how, what we work, how we invest uh, a lot of our waking hours as people does begin to define uh, our identity. It begins to define who we are. It begins to define our models of success, our models of what is uh, worth and valuable. And that's, that's just part of the truth and nature of work. Uh, we spend a lot of time, and we were designed for work. Again, you see in the creation story, Genesis 1, you know, God spent six days working. He created in six days uh, this, uh, this creation, the, the animals, the human beings, the, the land, the light, the darkness. He, he created, he crafted. And on the seventh day, uh, God rested. And again, another truth that we've come back to every week uh, in this series has been we were, as God's people, uh, created in the image of that God. We were imprinted with the Imago Dei on us. And so our own patterns of life, our own patterns of being, we were designed to be people who worked and rested. Uh, Some have said we were actually, it's flipped. You know, God was six days of work, uh, one day of rest. Uh, The first day of human creation, human was created on on the sixth day. Uh, On the seventh day, we actually, our first day in creation, we rested. And some said it's actually the, the task of the human being to rest and then work. And so we rest first, we, we encounter God first, we encounter people first, we create those relationships, and then out of that fountain, out of that source and foundation, we then enter into, uh, into our work. Uh, but one of, the, one of the challenges that we face uh, is that uh, as we live out that identity, if we're not careful, uh, we begin to really forget what our core identity is. Uh, N.T. Wright is a... A theologian, he's an author, uh, he writes often. And one of the things that N.T. Wright talks about is that once we become Christians, he wrote a book called After You Believe. So once we become Christians, one of the core questions that we have to ask and answer is, who am I? Who am I? Uh, this morning, we're going to spend most of our time in Romans chapter 12. So again, if you have your Bible with you, I'd invite you to open and leave open Romans 12. Again, we'll have a scripture on the screen. And I think Paul has a lot to say about this question and how Sabbath particularly uh, leads us to be the people God calls us to be as we examine our own work. So hear this word from Romans 12, beginning with verse 1. Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. One of the things Paul uh, did in Rome, as he looked at the Roman church, he looked out and, and, and said to them in a way that they would have heard well, like, this is not a separate thing. He's, when, he said, when Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, that your bodies would be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What Paul was saying, or part of what Paul was saying, is that all of your being, your entire body, your, your brain, your heart, your hands, your, like all of who you are, all that encompasses who you are, is actually designed to be in worship, not just in those times when we are pulled apart, but every day, all the time. Again, part of Brother Lawrence's book is about how we practice that. 
But I think that is one of the temptations that we get into or one of the distractions we get into as Christ followers is if we're not careful, we let days like today, we let Sunday morning from 11 to noon or 9.30 to 12 or whatever it may be, we let this be our worship. We let this be the only thing we do to worship. We think that singing songs and singing praise and praying and receiving communion is the only thing that constitutes worship. What Paul is saying to the Roman church is he's saying all of what you do, your entire body, everything that you do, every act that you take, every step that you take, every action that you make is a spiritual act of worship. I think one of the f- calls that we have as God's people is to realize that the work that we do when we leave this place is also designed and supposed to be spiritual work, worshipful work. The posture we take it at work is a posture of worship where we set ourselves in, in a posture to God that God is the one that is most holy. God is the one we work for. And therefore, we are to be a people that, that give everything that we have, our entire bodies, our entire being, to worship God. And what Paul recognizes is the same thing we recognize all the time, uh, is that's really hard. And so in verse 2, he says this. He says, Do not be conformed to this world, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul often writes about these competing values, the competing of the values of the world and the competing values of the kingdom. He said, if we're not careful, we're going to conform to those values of the world. We're going to be drawn to the things that the world values. And, and if we do that, we, we get pulled away constantly from God's desire from our lives. Because instead, you need to be a people that are about renewing your mind, renewing your hearts, renewing your souls, so that you might know what God's desire is for you. Not to belabor this point, but I think it's what we've been coming to every week. This is what Sabbath is for. Sabbath is for stopping what we're doing in the world so that we might have a chance to be renewed, restored, and reminded what God desires for us. We step out of the chaos, out of the noise, out of the uh, complexity, to a place of quiet, of still, to listen for God. It's in those places that we can be renewed, restored, and challenge uh, those things of culture. And one of the things I think we often ask in, in, in our work, in our action, and our activity, uh, is what does success look like? And I think culture and the kingdom of God put those things against each other. Uh, in verse 3, uh, Paul begins to engage that as well, and I think it's a really helpful piece after he talks about the good and acceptable, acceptable and perfect will of God, he says this in verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of yourselves more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. I think one of the temptations of work, of, of working, is that we would see ourselves as the most important piece of our work whether we're pursuing promotions or, or raises or more money or more authority or more responsibility, we begin to pull away and make ourselves the most important thing. You know, last week in Philippians 2, <coughs> excuse me, last week in Philippians 2, it's the same theme. Paul says to see others as greater than yourselves. He says, do not think more highly of yourself than you ought. You know, part of what Sabbath does for us is it reminds us that we're actually not that important. Sabbath says that one day a week when you step outside of the work that you do, when you disconnect from, you know, in our case, from things like this, from phones, from computers, when you actually set that aside, when you can, when you can do that, you're reminded uh, that we are not actually uh, 
it's not, the world spinning is not dependent on us. The problem is, for many of us, is we are either are in a world or we've created a world where we actually cannot disconnect, where we can't set it aside, where we've made it so that we are so important that the world can't get along without us for a day. And I think that is just antithetical to what God designed for us. I think when we do that, we've, what we've done is we've chosen to make an idol, either of ourselves, making us more important than God, or of our work, making our work actually more important than God's design. And it's a choice we've made. When we do that, we are acting, I believe, sinfully against God's design, where we think that we are so important that we cannot step out of it for, for a day. And I think for many of us, that's the pressure we feel, myself included. That we have to constantly be on, constantly be connected, constantly respond, because if we don't, then someone will forget us, or someone will, you know, I won't do enough, or I won't be enough, or I won't have said enough, and therefore I can't do the, the job that I've been called to do. When the reality is that's what Sabbath constantly breaks in us. It breaks this pride, breaks this, this image that we are so important that we cannot be gone for a day. We can't step aside for a day. And that's an important piece of, of who we are. Uh, Martin Luther uh, talked a lot about uh, power. I mean, Martin Luther was a, uh, was a priest in Germany, was a Catholic priest, uh, saw the Catholic Church, felt like the Catholic Church was, was going the wrong way, tried to start a reform movement, which ended up being this great reformation where the Protestant church sort of movement came. And he saw the same dynamic happening in churches. Uh, this is what he said. I want to read it to you. He said, you know, there's been a fiction by which the Pope, bishops, priests, and monks are called the spiritual estate, and princes, lords, artisans, and peasants are the temporal estate or the, the estate of this world. He says, this is an artful lie and a hypocritical invention. Let no one be made afraid by it, and that for this reason that all Christians are truly of the spiritual estate, and there is no difference among them save of office. St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, or actually in the next five verses of Romans, We are all one body, though each member does its own work, so as to serve the others. This is because we have one baptism, one gospel, one faith, and are all Christians alike. For baptism and gospel and faith, these alone make spiritual and Christian people. I think another thing we're challenged with is that we see our work, whether it's as a lawyer or a teacher or or a doctor, or stay-at-home mom, or stay-at-home dad, or whatever it is, is something other than our spiritual life. And Paul calls us to merge those things. So everything we do, every piece of who we are, is to be spiritual. It is not my job to be spiritual for all of us. You don't pay your pastor so that we can sort of take on the spiritual thing, and I'm somehow this elevated spiritual leader. Those that know me know that's just not true. I apologize. But we together get to live out what it means to be God's people in this world. We together get to be that people. We, we together get to do that work. And all the work we do is intended to be kingdom work. All the work we do, everything that we give, is intended to be something that leads people to experience the love of God. In the rest of this chapter, uh, Paul writes about what that looks like. And as he re- redefines success, redefines uh, what that means, he begins to redefine the marks of a Christian life. Uh, in verse 9, he says, this is what it means to be a Christian. This is what success looks like. This is what uh, it looks like to be the people God calls us to be. And it's not what culture offers us. Instead, it's this. 
He says, let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection and outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lag in zeal. Be ardent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in suffering. Persevere in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Extend hospitality to strangers. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Do not claim to be wiser than you are. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but take, uh, take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. And if it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. You know, one of the stories that I've shared here before is that, they are, as you know, our kids play sports. Coleman was very clear about it. He wants to be a sports player when he grows up. That's all he wants. And he's wanted it since he was a little kid. And one of the things that we saw in sports, you know, my wife and I both played sports growing up. We loved sports, loved to compete, loved to, loved to win, hated to lose. Uh, when he was four, we were play, he was playing soccer. And if you've ever seen four-year-olds play soccer, uh, yeah, you can just laugh. That's right. It is funny. Uh, we used to call it amoeba soccer. And they would run, a group of them, wherever the soccer ball was, they would just sort of run to the soccer ball. The soccer ball would be kicked over here. They'd all run to it. There'd always be two or three picking flowers over here, and that was a different thing. And what would happen, the way they'd score a goal was the amoeba would sort of move, and then you know, one of them would break loose the soccer ball. And as parents, you just pray they were going towards the right goal. Uh, it didn't matter. Whatever goal they scored in, we all cheered. Yay! Right? Well, one of those times, we were watching Coleman play, and he was in the amoeba soccer, and they were bouncing around, and, and he broke free uh, to, to score on those goals. He was going towards the correct goal. We were all excited. And going, Aaron and I are competitive enough that we really wanted to see him score, and so he was running. And what happened is one of the soccer players or one of the flower pickers over here, uh, parents yelled at them. They said, stop the ball. And they like sort of picked up. They go, oh, and they started running, right? And they went to stop uh, the ball. And another kid broke free from the amoeba. And they started running towards Coleman. And Coleman's running towards the goal. And they're running from either side. And, and they run. And right in front of Coleman, they run into each other and fall down. Right? <laughs> That's just... And so the ball is like sitting there on his feet. The goal is right in front of him. And we're like, he's going to score, right? And Coleman stops. And he looks at the two players on the other team and, like, turns to them and, like, says, are you okay? And starts to, like, help them up, you know? And I'm like, and as parents, we did what every good parent would do. We started screaming, no! Like, Like you're supposed to score a goal and then help them up. Don't you know how to play sports? But what he did for us and what, you know, later, as we were able to reflect and um, stop screaming at our four-year-old, you know, (laughs) was remind us that actually what success looks like for us on a soccer field looked more like stopping and helping a friend up who he didn't know nor did he know before the game or after the game, but saw someone that was fallen and reached down to help them up because he knew that's what he was supposed to do. He knew that's what Christian character looked like, and I hope that's because he saw it modeled in other people, whether ourselves or our friends or our family or our church. And so he stopped. And he let compassion supersede personal success. One of the things that I think we are called to as people who work are to live with that kind of ethic. That our success is actually, is actually measured by how we live out what Paul describes in Romans 12, 9 through 18. Are we willing to be a people who don't lift ourselves up but lift up the other? 
Are we willing to be a people who set aside our own gain for the sake of the other? Are we to be a people who seeing kindness and love and lifting up the lowly as our task? Is that who we see ourselves to be? Can we set that above our own personal achievement? And can our personal achievement actually lead ourselves to give ourselves away more and more and more to the things that are of the kingdom of God? The reality is if we're not careful, we can get so caught and the pressures and the conformity and the culture that we live in, that the, that the definition of success that culture gives actually draws us away from the definition of success that Christ offers. So here's my challenge this morning. I sort of would ask you again, you know, what, what do you want to be when you grow up? But whether that's in the job you're doing, whether that's in a life transition, whether that's uh, just continuing this pattern that you're in, whether it's retirement or just beginning, my hope would be that you would actually take time to step back and ask that question from the lens of Scripture. Not what's going to make you famous or what will make you wealthy. Perhaps those things happen. But what's going to help you live out God's call to be a people who love the other, who love the stranger, who, who lift up the lowly, who don't think too highly of ourselves or, or don't think we're wiser than everyone else, but that we are a people who see God as the one who drives and directs. See, see others as more important, that we love God, that we love neighbor, and that we live out this call in the world as a people who reflect Christ's kingdom in all that we do. That's God's invitation to us. And so that's my challenge this morning. No matter, no matter what you do, uh, whether you're a mom or a dad or a lawyer or a doctor or a teacher or in software, wherever it may be, that you would find a way to live by an ethic that reflects what it means to be a follower of Christ, a true disciple that walks in the way that leads to life and all that you do. Uh, this morning, we're going to be receiving communion. I said this at the first service. I always just want to, like, jump down, but I don't think it's, it's probably like, sort of break the moment. Not that that helps, but one of the things that this table reminds us, or that we're reminded of when we come to this table, um, is that even, even for Jesus, as he prepared to go do some of the most important work that Jesus did in his ministry. At the end of his life, he prepared to give his life up for us. And in his death, conquered death, conquered sin, and set us free from those things that bound us. Before that Friday, before the crucifixion, before Easter, uh, Jesus pulled away. And with his 12 closest friends, he went to a quiet room to celebrate the Passover meal, to pray, to listen to God's voice once again. And it was in that room they were celebrating the Passover, that Jesus took the bread. And deviating from the normal script of Passover, he gave thanks for the bread and broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, for this is my body which is given for you. And I ask you that every time you eat this bread, that you would remember me. When the supper was over, he took the cup. Again, he gave thanks and deviating from the script of Passover, he gave it to his disciples again and said, Drink from this, all of you. For this is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for you and for many for, for, the, for the forgiveness of sins. Every time you drink this cup, remember me. And so this morning as we come, we remember that what is possible for us to live out this life is only possible because Christ gives us that freedom to do that. And so as we remember this morning, I invite us to pray together. Almighty God, we do confess that too often 
We choose ourselves and our own ways over your ways. We confess that we fall short of your desire for our lives. And we recognize that the only way for us to be set free is to offer ourselves to you, to listen to your still small voice, and to choose in your freedom to live differently, to live transformed. And so this morning, Lord, as broken people, we come. We come to your table, and we ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on these gifts, and all of us gathered here, that they might be for us your body and blood again this morning, so that we might be redeemed by these gifts and sent out into this world redeemed to be your people. So Lord, make us one with your Son. Make us one with, one with each other. Make us one with the world as we carry out your gospel into this community, into our workplaces, into our neighborhoods, and into your, into your kingdom. In Christ's name, amen.